Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You've made a financial mistake. Now what? 2019 has unfortunately been a bumpy year for bad investments. We've seen the unravelling of Neil Woodford's investment empire, leaving many nursing heavy losses. Others have lost money in mini bonds or have money trapped in property funds which have gated. But if your investments haven't worked out for you this year, what do you do next? Prevention is better than cure, so we'll also be talking about financial mistakes that everyone needs to avoid. And as we enter the season of goodwill, if you're having a family get-together this Christmas, is it likely to involve a big argument about money? We'll be talking about that, and we'll even throw in a few financially-themed Christmas presents that there's still time to buy. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, money editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. If you think you might have made a financial mistake, then don't panic, because my two podcast guests today are brimming with solutions for you. Michael Martin, who's the private client manager at Seven Investment Management and trusted, confident and financial planner to many, um, is joining us. And also Jason Butler, the FT's wealth man columnist. Well, welcome both today. But Michael, starting with you... We wrote our cover feature last week about how you can come back from a bad investment. And you said in that that the only positive lining um, to this cloud is the learning experience it can provide. Yes, um, it's important actually to to make mistakes because it is part of the learning experience. And it's actually better sometimes to do things. You know, sometimes if you're not doing anything, you don't want to invest, you're worried about it. That's a problem. So at least at least people who have made a mistake have have done something, which is a proactive thing. But then you have to work out. What was the mistake? Why did it happen? And what are you going to learn from that? You know, there's Greg Davis, who's a psychologist, about it does investor psychology, and he always talks about you writing yourself some rules. Once you've once you've made a mistake, write yourself some rules, understand why you made the mistake, and make sure you don't repeat them. Now, in my own life, for example, I find it very difficult to invest in individual shares, partly because the FT restricts what we can do on that score. There's Mm -hmm. lots of disclosure, um, as you would expect, which makes it an added hassle. But also, um, when I was younger, I did used to to buy shares. I used to write about it in the Investors Chronicle for years. But then I'd find, like, if the share went up, it was kind of great for about a day. And then you'd think, what do I do now? You know, I've got to make another decision. Having made the decision to buy the share, it's gone up. Now, do I do I keep half and sell half, which is frankly, you know, a good enough um, yes. strategy. And that was what I was doing for a while. And then afterwards, I think actually after a conversation with Jason, I just thought I don't have the bandwidth in my life to mm-hmm. be constantly monitoring share prices. So I made a decision. I'm not going to um, try and get that alpha from investing yes. in individual shares. I'm just going to stick to 
trackers and to funds. And mm-hmm. that was my kind of boring yes. rule or experience, if you like. Well, I think that's I think that's essential. Work out what your parameters are. What, what work out what you're good at. And you know, even if you are buying individual shares nowadays, when you go online, you can buy a share and say, okay, if it gets to this price, you sell. If it gets to this price, you sell. Set it up when you buy it, so you know that if it goes up fifteen percent, perhaps you're going to be happy. It's already set at a price and it's gone. I saw a client last week who had bought a share and it went up ninety percent in the first two weeks. He held on to it and it's now at a loss. Oh. And I said to him, "What were you actually looking for?" When you bought that, you said well, a reasonable return. It was 90% not a reasonable return? Yes. If you had set the parameters at the beginning, it would have automatically sold. You would have walked away and you'd been a very happy person. Now, one of the biggest <clears> pieces of advice that you said is you've really got to try to avoid making the same mistake twice. <clears> so this is a really key thing for people to get their heads around. Yes, because if you do the same things and expect a different outcome, then that is, the, I think, the definition of insanity or something like that. So you've got to try and think, what did I do last time? And just make sure you don't do it again, because everybody makes mistakes. It's a normal thing. It's a learning experience. Everybody's made bad investment decisions. You can't be perfect. You know, Even the best fund managers have all made mistakes. So just learn from them. Try not to repeat them and use them as learning exercises. Now, we also dedicated a hefty slug of that article to the mistakes that financial planners in particular urge their clients um, to avoid, um, so much so that one of our fans um, on, on Twitter, um, this is RDFNG Media, said, on my third and fourth read um, of this brilliant FT article, my fingers are sore from scribbling notes. Definitely worth the read, especially if you want to avoid some of the pain of learning from your own money mistakes. So what are some of the things that um, we talked about in that piece? So the thing about advisors are that we're there to have, we're there, as, as you said in my um, bio at the beginning, with a confidant, with a counsellor, we're there to talk about things, we're there to set the parameters, we're there to set the rules, we're there to give people a plan. You know, what did you, what were you planning to do when you bought these things? What was, what was, what did success look like? And then when it happens, we say to them, this is now the time to either sell out of that or move into something else. You know, so we're there to set the parameters and make sure people um, stay by them because, you know, I have clients who've invested in businesses and they've also invested with us. And, and what we are is a, is a, is a line between them just getting cash back. So let's say they've already put a lot of money into a new business. They want to come to me and get more money out of the business. So they say to me, can you return some money? I'm there to say, you know, this is your retirement money. This is here the money to look after for the rest of your life. You want to now risk it in something you've already put a huge amount of money into. And just by saying things out loud and reminding them of the plan, it's a little bit of more defence. Obviously, it's still their money, but it just articulates it for them. It puts it through their mind and we're there to protect them from themselves. And when it comes to prevention of bad things happening, writing a will is one thing that Mm -hmm. you and many other financial planners said there's just so much kind of superstition about doing. Yes. Well, the thing is, when people say, what are you doing this weekend? It's not often I'm going to write a will because it is slightly depressing. And so many of my clients, they don't talk about money. They don't think about money between the meetings. So sitting down and talking about your death is something that no one really ever wants to do. But if, I'd love to see the stat of people who have been a, an executor for a will and those people who have wills. It's an amazing correlation because once you've been through, you know, being a, being an executor, even worse, being an executor of someone who doesn't have a will, being appointed, it's, a, it's an absolute nightmare. You then decide, I've got to save the, I've got to make sure my dependents don't have to deal with this because dying without a will, anyone can turn up and say, well, they said they give me £5,000. You have to prove otherwise or you go to court. So it, 
it's it's a nightmare. So always think it's quite a simple thing to do. Spend a little bit of money on it and make sure clarity is there. And then um, being underinsured, that was another problem. I, I heard a terrible story, in fact, this weekend. Um, a wonderful lady with three children. Um, her husband died in a skiing accident. He wasn't yes. ill. It was just a tragic, tragic accident. They didn't have any life insurance. So that has changed her life in two horrible ways. Number one, losing her partner. And number two, you know, the financial ruin pretty much yes. that, that she was facing. And we didn't have any examples like that in the article. But nevertheless, insurance is something that you are very hot on. It is. It's, it's always the bedrock to everything you do. Because if something goes wrong and, and you're not around, all the other investments which are exciting and all these things, they just don't happen. And I, I don't know if you remember the to- story I told you about the chap I saw and we were recommending a life policy for him. It was about £200 a month. He decided, well, actually, I'm going to save that £200 a month. And I said, well, if you die in a, you know, a year, you'll only have about £2,500 saved up, whereas this is going to pay out £700,000 if you die. About four months later, a lawyer phoned me up and said, I'm going through this chap's estate. I found some information. We, you had a discussion about life cover. Did he take it out? And I said, no. He decided to save it, despite my many protestations. And he had died. And oh, he had no. no cover whatsoever. So he had saved four or five hundred pounds, but he had cost his 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 um, wife and his children seven hundred thousand. He wouldn't have got the cover anyway because there was obviously something wrong. But he probably would have. They would have been found out earlier, and they might have been able to do something about it. So it, it, that's what happens. Make sure your your protection and your foundation is is a strong one. Well, and in the article, which you can read in full online at ft dot com slash money, um, we also talk about critical illness insurance, income protection, um, and managing cash flow, which is a big issue for people who are in drawdown. But Michael, the last point you made in the article involved a rather different kind of financial mistake which you described as ruining your children. Yes, because a lot of people think about, you know, if you've got children, it's how do I protect them and how do I not spoil them? But the problem is they go through various amounts of thoughts. They think, okay, they're 18, going to university. It's too early to give them money. Go to their 20s, okay, they're a bit wild. I'm not sure about that. 30s, who are they settling down with? Let's have a look at that. 40s, who are they divorcing and who are they splitting up with? Not so happy about that. Then they get to the 50s and think, it's too late now. So it's it's when 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 do you decide to actually give money to your children because you don't want to ruin their lives? But should give money commensurate to the amount of money you have. If you've got a reasonable amount of money, give your kids a reasonable amount of money. If they do something stupid, and they're not clever enough to understand that if they do something stupid with the first amount of money, they're not going to get any more. They don't deserve any more. So just test them to a certain extent. And there's something that I've been doing for a lot of clients recently is. If you can set up some sort of charitable trust, get the children involved in that. They get involved in the investing of it so they understand that. They start to understand the value of money and they start to understand the good that can come out of those things. Without actually giving them any money, you give them all the bells and whistles of of investing. So a charitable trust is a really good thing to set up. If you've got a reasonable amount of money, get your children involved and teach them about finance. Well, very good advice there. And speaking of children, if you're seeing your family at Christmas, might a family argument about money be on the menu? Jason Butler's column in FT Money this weekend considers the rising number of disputes over inheritances that are happening. Jason, you've heard Michael talking about his ideas of how to get children used to managing money. And that's basically the nub of your article this week. It is. And uh, teaching and talking and um, building sort of money skills is, is part of it. Yes, definitely. For lots of successful families, uh, families have built some wealth and, and have had some affluence and so on. The challenge is, is is how much is enough? When should they have it? Should they have it at all? 
And I think the big issue really is that families don't find it easy to talk about money. That's the bottom line. In fact, we're very bad at talking about relationships and sex half the time of our children and our adult children. And we're even worse at talking about money. So it is the last taboo. Certainly, I'd rather talk about money Yeah, in well, such a situation. <laughs> well, possibly, possibly. But it also comes with lots of loaded issues. So, for mm. instance, if, if our parent has been absent for a long period of time while building the wealth, they can feel guilt and therefore you can get indulgence. Um, you could actually... Um, say one thing to your children about money, if, even if you feel comfortable talking about it, but your your behaviours and how you use money is at completely opposite ends. So, And, and sometimes uh, people use money as a form of coercion and control. So the big issue really I was talking about is that most successful families um, are not going to have money as a force for good in their life for beyond three generations. So in other words, the, the money doesn't help the family be the best version of themselves uh, and be a strong uh, harmonious unit, but what it actually does is it it can become become a sort of battering ram or a problem or a, or an issue. Kick down the can, you know, so that when someone dies, suddenly there's a big inheritance. Or you give them too much too soon, and they're not ready for it, and it affects their personality, affects their sense of purpose. And and the big issue for many families is if they could find a structured way to work out the purpose of money in the family, um, the family's purpose, and it's not just about transferring the money. Because estate planning, as we, as we know, Michael, it's all about, isn't it? You know, financial planners help you grow and p- protect your wealth. And then the estate planning attorney comes in and helps you get the money ready. But who gets the children ready or the mm. next generation? Mm-hmm. And that is really a, a whole issue, as I say, of family purpose. But it's transferring more than just the money. It's transferring the wisdom, the values, the stories that went behind it. I mean, I found a story about my grandfather, which I didn't even know. He'd had three manufacturing businesses, all of which were failed. What I actually found the, the stories of how he picked himself up and I got great inspiration from hearing about how he coped with adversity. Now, as it yeah. was, he, he, he died a modestly wealthy chap, not wealthy as such, but, you know, for his time in the 80s, he had a bit, he owned his own house and he didn't owe anyone any money. But that is, those stories I thought were lost until I heard about them from my brother. So now they are going into my family history and... And my wife and I recently went through what we call a guided discovery, which is something that I do with a small number of families each year, where someone interviews me and my wife to get the stories out, how we met, how we thought about business, how we thought about when we first made our first bit of money and how it was how we cope with adversity. And and it was it was almost like marriage guidance in a way. And we sort of fell in love with each other all again. You know, not that we weren't in love, but you know what I mean? We remember on Jason. We, we're we, not talking we, about sex on this podcast. But we relived all those early <laughs> we'd forgotten about all those early uh, stories yeah. about when it was really tough and we weren't sure if we could pay the staff. And and they are great stories to share as well as the money. Mm, absolutely, Michael. I can see you nodding in the corner. Well, yes. Well, that's the thing. It's 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 working out what money means to people. It's quite odd sometimes that a lot of my clients. I sort of say to them at some point, "You've got more money than you need to live for the rest of your lives." They don't change their way of living because they've got into a pattern of spending. They've got a, a way into a pattern of saving as well. And that the important thing is to pass that on to your children. And you're right. I would say it's what they've seen and what they've experienced. And if 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 you've sort of brought them up in a reasonably straightforward financial situation, they will then understand how to run money. So it's they do learn the, the habits and the behaviours of their parents. You know, I certainly have the habits of my my father, incredibly tight Scotsman. You know, so that you know it gets built inside you and it gets built within the the matrix of you, and you pass that on to your children so that they they sort of spend money in the same way. But money at the end of the day, when we're talking about not spoiling children or, or it, be, it needs to be a help, not hindrance. Mm. And you're not defined by your parents or your grandparents or your previous grandparents' financial success or lack thereof if you're in a more modest situation. 
but you are defined by those values and what you stand for. And, and transferring the legacy of social capital, of human capital, all that ingenuity and the wisdom that the family has, that's why families like the Rothschild are so enduring because they make sure that they communicate what the family stands for. The money is merely is a, is a, is a, is a help, not a hindrance. And it's, it's something that they use as a force for good as opposed to um, uh, losing their way in life and, and losing their own motivation. And what I've found is I, I, I speak to a lot of the children of my clients to try and get them the education and what they're trying to achieve. And what a lot of them are trying to do is, so when I first meet a client, I fill out a, sort of everything about their lives. You do the whole 360. Yes, and try and work out what they're trying to. But a lot of them want their own page in my book. They want to have their own life. They want to have their own financial goals, of own financial. So that in, in 20 or 30 years, they can look back and say, well, what did I achieve? What did my money, my parents' money achieve? But what did I achieve separately? So then they can perhaps use this money to borrow money from it and give money back and they perhaps invest in a business. But they want their own page to say, I bought that house. I, I built that business. I had that job. I, so they're not just thinking, okay, well, I've got my parents' money. That's it. So what, what's amazing is it, it's because they've had it instill, instilled within their, their, their belief system that they should look after money. So they want their own page and they want their own life because otherwise you look back and think, well, that, what have I achieved? You know, you don't want your, your achievements just to be washed away with the wealth of your parents. But family harmony, at the end of the day, money can help families from, from what I call the big cock-ups and big missteps yeah. and big, as we say, financial uh, blow-ups. And it can be a safety net. But in order for people to reach their full potential and for families to endure in the future, you've just got to have a very honest and open conversation about the value of money, um, the values that your family holds dear, and going beyond your own needs and finding your own purpose. And if you can do that, then the money is merely a kind of a, 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 a sort of a sideshow, as it were. It doesn't define everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think what Jason said earlier was, I always instill that in everybody I speak to. It's the communication and read your will to your children while you're alive so they all understand it because... They're going to be if they if you don't read it to them when they're alive, they'll be hearing it when you're dead, when you're not around to explain what you meant or what what, what things can get misinterpreted, and they get misinterpreted when at the more at that time, emotions are running high. Someone has just died. Yeah, read it when you're a, a, a Sunday lunch. This is my will. Anyone have any questions? <laughs> Does anyone have any problems? But just on that on that point, just to finish, really on that point, absolutely fantastic. But I'm not sure about Sunday lunch reading <laughs> will. But just two examples of where I use everyday scenarios to talk to my children about money, and they are nearly 16, and the other one's 21. The 21 year old's back from uni, and I've said to her, "Look, I need to put you on as one of the attorneys on your mum and I's uh, lasting powers of attorney." What that means is X, Y, and Z. This is important, but you're not on your own because you know your brother, your uncle will be on it as well. Well, that was one dealt with. What does that mean, Dad? And how does that work? Fine. And then the younger one, she's getting ready for her GCSEs. And I explained about the if she can get her academic scholarship, she gets a big reduction, or rather we get a big reduction on the fees when she's in the sixth form. And I said, if you get the academic scholarship, the difference between four fees and what you would we would have to pay, we will put aside for you so you can go and do that trip to Borneo you want to do, mm -hmm. or that marine biology course you want to do when you're older. So she is getting the understanding of the value of money, that, that her efforts and work matter, but we're not holding it out, out as a big issue. She doesn't get it. It just means she'll have a bit less in her savings. Yeah. No, so looking for everyday opportunities to talk in a positive way and make it about them, not about you.
No, they're very good practical examples. I like that very much. Well, in fact, um, so much so that I wrote my own column um, in FT Money last week um, about financial gifts that you can give to your children at Christmas to help them um, understand the value of money. Um, One of the ones that got most commented on um, was this amazing ATM that you can buy. You can buy your children their own cash point. It's actually cunningly disguised as a savings bank. So you can feed in um, notes. It's all automatic, sucks them in. You can feed in coins that counts them all. You can set a savings goal, um, do all of that stuff. But really, it's just a way of keeping um, the money. But my friend's little girl um, got one for her birthday a couple of weeks ago and is absolutely obsessed. It comes with a little card and a little pin. And it's just kind of getting them used to working out um, what money is worth. We, we talked about various other things that parents can set up for, um, for their children in the same article. I've had lots of emails from uh, readers expressing interest in junior ICEs, um, but also setting your child up a pension, which I've said is slightly controversial um, because they're not really very flexible things, children's pensions, are they, Michael, even though you can get some valuable tax relief on them? No, well, that's the thing. They, the children can only get their hands on the money when they're 55. and you know whether or not you're around to be thanked for that is a is a question. And also, as I said in in the article I wrote about it, that um, it could cause some lifetime allowance issues in the future, because the power of compounding is enormous. If you start to put three thousand six hundred pounds into a child's pension, they will actually quite quickly hit the one million pound cap. So it's working out. Are you actually just giving them a tax issue as well in the future? But I do think any savings for children is a good thing to do. So. It's a very small percentage of people that are going to be worried about lifetime allowance for their children. So just save money for them, get them used to it, and tell them what you've got for them. Possibly take off some zeros in some cases, but so they understand what they've got and they understand why they've got it. But yes, ICES are, are far more flexible. But my slight issue with ICES at the moment is they're becoming a bit more. There's so many now, and there's so many mm. different types. It used to be a very simple thing. Now you think, shall I do that one? Shall I do that one? But they are still flexible. You know, you can get your money out when you need it. And that's a, that's a great thing. It's also a bad thing if you can get your money out when you need it because, um, you know, it, it's open when they're 18, they can take their money out. So pensions are attractive because they tie up the money. Pensions are not very good because they tie up your money and vice versa for ISIS. Jason, what are your views on pensions for, for for youngsters? I think for most people it's a brilliant idea because actually the single biggest goal that we have is retirement planning. We're all living longer. It's going to cost us a lot more. I don't believe, uh, I personally don't worry about a lifetime allowance because by the time they'll get there, they're going to need even more money than we've ever needed. So I, I don't think that's a big issue. I agree with you that, and, and the money that they're putting now, I mean, I've got my website, as you know, I've got the thing of Sarah and Anil. You know, she saved uh, two and a half thousand for 10 years from 21 to 30 when she left uni. Anil partied for 10 years and did not, no savings. He had to put in four times as much as she did, even when she stopped saving at 30. And she ended up with more money in her pot than he did, assuming it was the same investment. So I'm not so convinced. However, I don't believe you should be putting money into a pension plan before you've done all the other foundations. So for most people, they'll need to start off. But I think the other thing, just to say that thing about teaching children about money and about saving, is also think about doing charitable giving for the children, where the children make the choices Mm. and possibly putting some of their own pocket money in or some of Mm. their own little savings that they get from family. So if they got, let's say they got two or three hundred pounds from different people over the course of the year, say, well, if you put a third of that into philanthropy or charitable giving, we will double it or quadruple it. Or as you know Mm. this, we've always done 10 times for our kids, but it's got a bit too expensive at the moment. So we've had to try and rein that one in. (laughs) That's a good problem. So it's not Mm. just about 
about their savings and saving for them. It's about getting them to think beyond themselves. Because mm-hmm. my kids say to me, well, Dad, you're so motivated to still work now, even though you know we've, we've had some success. And I said, because I want to give more away. And it's not mm-hmm. that I'm the Sultan of Brunei, but I'm excited about supporting causes. And if I can go and earn X pounds a year that I don't need for myself, that's money that I can give away. But if I don't earn that money, the pressure's off me. But I feel like I've let the causes down. So they start hearing that and seeing that. And they're thinking, okay, um, it's not about more and more and more. It's just mm-hmm. about being intentional. Well, a lovely point on which to end. So thank you very much there to my two wonderful guests, Michael Martin from Seven Investment Management and Jason Butler, our Wealth Man columnist. The Money Show podcast is taking a little Christmas break. We'll be back in the new year. The first Money Show of 2020 will be released on Thursday, the 9th of January. But rest assured, there's a full FT Money section in the FT Weekend newspaper on Saturday, the 21st of December, which features our investment outlook for the year ahead and also Bobby Seagull's Christmas Maths Quiz, which you can do with your children, teach them about money in a different way. Uh, Listeners in the US, I've got a little Christmas present just for you because the money pages are crossing the Atlantic inside the life and art section of the weekend between Christmas and the New Year. So you can read us in there. And for readers in the UK, there'll be a full money section again on the 4th of January. And online readers can find all of the articles and more on the new personal finance section of the FT app. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with our writers and experts or even suggest a podcast topic for us to talk about next year, you can email us our address money at ft.com or follow us on Twitter for all the latest news updates. Our handle is at FT money. And it goes without saying that we wish all of you a very restful break and a happy and prosperous new year ahead. Goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.